Welcome to my podcast and today I'm sitting in the library at Highclere and my guest is Julian Fellows, Lord Fellows, who of course was the creator and writer of Downton Abbey. So welcome Julian, thank you so much for being here with me today and I don't know whether this is my or your favourite room, but it's definitely. No, I love this room. But yeah, you know, it's lovely to be back. I feel um, it has been. I mean, we've been back a bit because of making the second film here, but you know, this house has been part of my life for ten years now. So uh, it is always a slightly sort of uh, a mixture of nostalgia and affection when I come down the drive, and there's the house. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Because I remember when you and Emma came and stayed as our guests and friends before Downton, and there's almost a before Downton and after Downton yeah, sure. in our life. And it has been the most amazing journey, and I'm so grateful that Highclere and George and I have been part of it. And it has, and I'm glad also that I hope it hasn't changed our friendship because it's always challenging when you've got this phenomenal which has sailed around the world into people's lives and underneath it a friendship of just four people. But to go back to the very beginning, which is a very good place to start, can I ask you, and I think people would love to know, why did you choose Highclere? Why was Highclere in the running, Julian? Well, um, it was long before Downton uh, and I'd come here, I forget now, why but I, I was here for something and I was looking around and I thought this is a marvelous house for a narrative because it's very big it's very impressive it's very this and this and this but it's tremendously straightforward you, you don't get lost here there's a very clear line of rooms around the hall there's a clear line of bedrooms around the gallery and there's also the added advantage that the door to the kitchens is in the saloon. It's in the middle of the house. So that whole side of the narrative is not going to get lost. And, and so I tried to use it for a version I was making of Little Lord Fauntleroy a long time ago uh, in the 80s. And I can't remember now why it didn't work and we ended up at Eastner. But then again, um, some years later, when my writing career was getting going and I'd written a script called Gosford Park for the American director, Robert Altman, uh, and I wanted this house for that. But uh, Bob Altman had a theory because he, what he liked to do was cast star actors in all the roles. So they would have tiny parts sometimes, these leading actors and actresses. Uh, and that was his sort of signature, really. And he thought, whether he was right or not, that they would only do it if they could sleep in their own bed. And that meant that if they had a day off filming, it was really a day off and they weren't stuck in some provincial town trying to see a movie. Uh, and so he insisted on a house near London and we ended up at Rootham. A lovely house, actually. And, house. And, it, and it worked very well for the film. But that, that was why this time... Uh, with Downton, it was my third go and it proved to be third time lucky. <laughs> well, thank you, because I remember actually your wonderful wife, Emma, calling me on, on my mobile and saying, Fiona, there's, there's something in the offing. And I remember that and I thought, well, fun if I had thought that when I'd last seen her, maybe it was a raised eyebrow, but you're never quite sure what. It is extraordinary how you can have some sort of empathy. And then we got a call from a location manager um, and every, and you, I remember you coming here and with Gareth Neem, who we've got to know well as well, which has been a joy. And, and you thought you'd found the perfect place at the first place you'd seen. But then tell me what happened. Well, of course, 
Uh, it's rather like some people when shopping. I mean, I slightly have this with Emma. That she'll, if, if she wants to go shopping and she goes into the first shop and there is exactly what she's looking for, she can't buy it because that would deprive <laughs> herself of the whole shopping experience. So she then has to go to 47 shops, none of which have anything better than the one she saw in the first one. And she comes back. And of course, sometimes it's sold. And, and, uh, and I never understand that. As my way of shopping is to go into the first shop, see what I'm looking for, buy it and go home. And the whole thing's over. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, a great success. But no, we then trailed off round practically every house in England. Uh, and then there was a moment, because it was set in Yorkshire, when it was going to be made in Yorkshire, out of Yorkshire Studios or whatever it was and then we looked at some very nice houses and you know but then that idea died and they wanted to make it out of London and have the studio side of it at Ealing and finally we woke up one day when we were doing one of the rounds of these houses and got down to breakfast and and Gareth said to me do you think it's time we went back to Highclere and I said yes and then, then that was it and then we we knew we were going to use Highclere. Well, it was lovely because from my point of view, I had appreciated your travels round and would obviously accept it either which way. And I had pinged Gareth an email saying, I'm sure you've seen some beautiful houses and you may well have chosen one of them because it suits you better. But before I go ahead and book some of the weddings for next year, I just wanted to check in with you. Um, and not really expecting much back because I, I never want to be... I never want to be too optimistic as <laughs> my way of being. And then I got a lovely email back from him saying, no, no, we want to come to you. So I ran to tell Geordie, which was very exciting. But I don't think any of us knew how exciting it was actually going to be. Well, I don't so think any of us knew what was. But what I was very keen on, actually, uh, which I felt was very important, not all of them agreed with me, but, but I wanted a house where a family had stayed continuously through the different periods and the pictures and the furniture told the story of a family who hadn't moved around because that's what I very much wanted Downton to be in the Crawleys but uh, you know obviously there were other people who felt oh well you know we can do that we can create that we'll do that out of a property but they can't quite and you can always see in a film when they're working in something that's been got up out of props and hard furniture and this, that, the other. It's not quite the same. And I was very, very keen on that. Well, we were very lucky. And I think, you know, looking back and thinking about it today, I think Highclere has a huge sense of place as a home. It's obviously my earliest written records are 749 AD and it was owned by the church and there was some sort of monastery here. And then Geordie's family have been here and they've lived here. And we try and live here today within a community and a family of, I wouldn't say upstairs and downstairs today, I tend to use the word more of a team, but I think that sense of being has helped given people an anchor, actually. When they watch Downton, they can actually be here, and then that segues into the fact that visitors come here and they're in Downton Abbey, and they find it so exciting. And some visitors, they stand in the North Library, Julian, and they cry. <laughs> so Yes, I mean, I think the other thing is that the way you live in these houses changes. And just as 
in the 17th or 16th century, you'd be sitting in a great hall with all your servants and people eating on tables around you. Then by the, the end of the 19th century, that had all gone and everyone lived in servants' quarters and upstairs downstairs was very much raining. But the fact that our version of that is different and we've moved into a different era isn't a break with history. It's no. just another evolutionary step. Mm. And that's what, you know, I wanted the feel of the program to be really that you could see this family living on and staying and changing and Robert being a bit bewildered by some of the things that were happening and so on, just as in a lot of families we know. Completely and utterly, actually. It's, it is fascinating and it has gripped people emotionally and with their heart as well as just being a narrative on TV. And, you know, I know that nine o'clock on, on an evening in England, lots of people were sitting down as a family to watch Downton Abbey. And then the same thing happened in America. It, and when I go and sometimes give a talk in America, I look round and they all think they know exactly where I live <laughs> and the house. It is, it is quite surreal. And then it's a, there's moments of bringing everyone together as well as watching it in a theatre. And when we watched the first film in New York, Julian, and the credits came up, and the house came up at the very beginning of the film and everybody in New York clapped. Oh. It was so moving. So again, I wanted to cry. It's my default. But I think the second film will probably capture people in the same way. I think the first film surprised. I think the second film will give much pleasure from the little I've seen of it to, again, millions of fans and perhaps some new admirers as well. Well, I hope so. I, I, I like it. I think it's turned out well. But you're quite right. The extraordinary thing for me has been people's emotional involvement. You know, I remember one woman saying, oh, I, I worry so much about Cora. And I said, look, you, you don't have to. I said, Elizabeth McGovern is having a wonderful time with it and is having a marvellous period of her career and there's absolutely nothing to cry about, you know. She said, no, but I do worry. And I, and I had another one who followed me into a bookshop on Fifth Avenue and I was walking around and I could feel this woman following me. And finally, I thought, oh, well. And I, I turned around and I said, can I help? And she looked at me with her eyes brimming and she said, just let Edith be happy. <laughs> and in those moments, you realise you've gone into a sort of alternative reality yes. uh, and you're as bewildered by it as everyone else, you know. But it has, I mean, it's been a very happy experience, really. I mean, of course, making a TV show and then two movies over a 10-year period, there's a certain amount of chills and spills involved as well. But it's a happy job, and I, I know that uh, my obituary when I'm dead will be the writer of Downton Abbey, and it doesn't worry me too much. I, I think, you know, I think we've given a lot of people a lot of pleasure and, and good. Let me ask if you had any characters in mind when you wrote it. Well, I always tend to cast... A, a, a script in my head, not necessarily believing that that's going to be the one who plays it, but it's to get a different voice, because otherwise all the characters speak with your voice. And if you know you're writing for Audrey Hepburn or Laurence Olivier, you don't hear your voice in your head, you hear their voice. And, and hopefully that gives a different tone to the different speeches. Uh, so that's done quite deliberately. I mean, uh, you know, I am tempted to say there are one or two characters in Downton who are the people I imagined when I was writing it. And they took it to them. And of course, they were the sort of first people we approached. 
And they said yes. And that was a great plus because the more you get tip-top actors into a show, the more you'll get other ones because there's a, it starts to smell of something quite interesting. It's like some television series very early on get the thing that their guest stars are all going to be first-rate. And then from then on, it becomes respectable to be in that particular series. So uh, there, there is that. But I, I, in other times, you know, I remember in one part in um, Gosford Park, I had completely cast it in my head with this actress who was quite overweight and bulky, very good actress. And then it was cast. She, she didn't, I think she couldn't do it. I think her schedule didn't allow it. And they cast it. And I went to a supper given by Bob Altman to meet the cast. And she said, oh, I'm playing whatever the character was. I thought, are oh, you? Because there was this tiny little bird of a figure and everything. Of course, I said, oh, I'm marvellous, you know. But I thought in my head, well, strike a light. But then I went to her first day of filming. And she came in and started to play this part. And from that moment... I, the original concept was completely erased. I was absolutely mesmerised by her version. So I think one mustn't wall oneself off from the possibility that it's going to be different from the way you'd imagined, and it will still be good. I mean, I think in most things, you have to stay slightly on the back foot. You know, it's like in anything, you mustn't have the wrong fights. Uh, and it may be that doing something differently it's going to be better than your original idea. And, you know, you should just entertain that possibility. We are lucky enough to see some of the pages of script ahead of time in order to understand where the actors and actresses are acting, where the setting is for this particular scene, where we're going to put all the computers and the cameras and where the green room is, etc. But it's, it's quite specific, both the lines and your direction. So I can see the detail in your head, the sort of three-dimensional detail that goes on. Would that be correct in terms of writing a line and then maybe the music comes in or whatever else? Do you have that much detail when you write? Or... I, I am... Uh, fairly precise because it's a boggy area where a lot of people think they know and they don't and one of the very lucky strokes of the show was that Maggie was sort of the queen of the team and she is a very precise actress she says the line you've written and she doesn't change the punctuation she says it and of course if that is going on in front of you it's very difficult to go wildly off-piste because you, know, you, know, you think in the American phrase you'll make it your own, you know. I've had trouble with that in certain areas, but in this, uh, they've all been pretty faithful. What I felt was, and I feel this strongly, uh, but I was lucky in that Gareth Neem on this completely agreed with me, Robert Altman on uh, the film completely agreed with me, that if you get all the details right even for people watching it who don't know anything about it, they have a sense that this is probably how it is uh, because it seems to make sense. I mean, I remember seeing Mira Nair's film Monsoon Wedding. I, I remember thinking, I don't know anything about modern India, but I bet this is what it's really like. I bet this is really accurate. Uh, and it, it had such a smell of truth about it. Uh, and that was really what I always aspire to so that a, a detail 
see, you, what I hope is that people look at this way of life and they, you know, they haven't lived it or anything like it, but they can see how it worked because the details are correct. Yes, it is. I think a successful life is actually all about detail. So many of your lines, Julian, have just gone into the English language around the world. And of course, one of them is, what is a weekend? And the way Maggie delivered it was just extraordinary. But when you wrote it, what was your thoughts behind it? What did you think? How did you think she was going to deliver it? Well, I was really quoting from a great aunt of mine who told me the story that a very uppity young man had been trying to sort of impress her and brag about this, that and the other. And he used this word, which at that time was not in general use among that group. Uh, and they used to talk about Saturday to Monday, uh, even though it usually ran from Friday to Tuesday, but nevertheless. Uh, and, and it was considered a bit naff. And so she decided, of course, she knew what a weekend was, but she decided to put him down by saying, what is a weekend? And thereby plunging a pin into his bubble. And when Matthew was banging on about being, uh, I'll be a solicitor and I'll do this and I'll do that. And of course, to Maggie, Maggie's character, uh, Violet, uh, the mere fact that Matthew was sitting at that table at all was an insult uh, and impudence in itself. It was ridiculous that he was inheriting this ghastly young man from nowhere. And so she was looking for a way to put, it, put him down. And when I was constructing the scene, this line came back to me. But where you get it, uh, so it was so memorable, is in Maggie's playing. Because she plays it under. She doesn't whack it out like a handbag or something, you know, one of those shouty lines. She, she just drops it in. What does we can? And, and it was so funny that as she did it, I was there when they were filming that scene. And as she did it, I thought, I bet that lands. I never like to be overconfident, you know, when people say, oh, this is going to do But um, I was pleased with that. And then again, as, as you were saying, it popped up on 100 million T-shirts. And I, I felt that was a sort of praise, really. To go back to the very start, I know that part of this house, the story of this house, begins in Egypt with the fifth Earl of Carnarvon discovering the tomb of Tutankhamen. And of course, your life, though I don't think you'll remember it, also began in Cairo, didn't My it? My life began in Egypt. I was born in the Anglo-American hospital on the banks of the Nile. My father was in the embassy then. He was the second secretary or something. And um, with Donald McLean, actually. Wow. Uh, and he'd been working with Guy Burgess in London. Who, they were all in part of that generation of the Foreign Office. So he must have been investigated, but he was as straight as a ruled line. So that was the end of that. He was quite funny, actually, because uh, he didn't like McLean very much. And so that was... And when they all defected and Kim Philby, didn't, he wasn't too fond of. But he, he said to my mother when he was going to Moscow or something, he said, if I'm going to be in real trouble if I meet Guy, he said, because he was the funniest man I've ever known. And he could make my father cry with laughter. And he said, the other two I can cut and I won't care. But I, I, I'm not sure I can cut Guy. But happily, he never met him. So that was that. Yes, extraordinary times. And then you came back to this country. And, and I then I came back and I was here for some years. And in those days, of course... Security was so very different in the 50s and things. All you did as a travelling parent with your children was you wrote their names in the back of your passport. That was it. And your own writing, you know. You can't imagine it now, can you? But anyway, and I was in my mother's passport, I suppose, or my father. No, my mother's. And we went on holiday and we did this and this. 
And then the day dawned when I was about 11. And my father was by then uh, head of Shell in Nigeria. And I was going to have to fly out to Nigeria with my brothers. And so they went to try and get me a passport. And they said, no, this boy was born in Egypt. And his father was born in Canada, which my father was born in Canada, in Calgary. And my grandfather, because we were an imperial family, uh, my grandfather was born in Melbourne, in Australia. Oh and so, and in those days, the mother didn't count. I mean, fascinatingly to me, the mother didn't count until the reign of Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah. She was the one that gave women the same rights over their babies as fathers. Good it's absolutely extraordinary. But anyway, um, so he is Egyptian and he needs an Egyptian passport. And, and I remember I was in the drawing room with my mother. My father had gone to try and sort this out. And he came in and she said, well, he said, I'll tell you what I've done. I bought the boy a fez and he put a fez on his head. She said, oh, yes, it's all very funny to you. But, of course, in the end, in that mysterious English way, some string was pulled and I found I had a British passport. But it was a slightly worrying period. And I still get questioned. I remember I was going into... California once and in the airport he said you were uh, born in Egypt do you still have friends from that time in your life and I said <laughs> I said no I, I left Egypt when I was about one my mother brought me back to London and uh, and I never went back he said do you have friends from that time in your up here in your life I said, well, obviously, your infancy was much more social than mine was. But, of course, the one lesson we all know is never make a joke with an immigration officer. So the result was I was standing there for about an hour <laughs> trying to persuade them that I didn't keep up my Middle Eastern links. But anyway, I mean, it, it, it has complicated several things not being born in Britain. So I was pretty happy when my son was born here. So... I know that now it's you know you're right you're right you're you're the line is creator of Downton Abbey whenever anybody talks about you in, in the many of the newspapers, but before that Geordie and I used to sit here in Downton Abbey watching you was Monarch of the Glen Monarch and Geordie loved Glen. that program mainly because you know it was it was just such fun and it was a, a, both of us love Scotland yes it, 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 it was it was fun to make they were very nice team and very nice crew and and of course they went through the Gosford Park adventure with me because I wrote the script during the second series and then I arrived for the fourth series holding the Oscar so wow. the crew and cast had gone through the whole thing and in fact uh, quite I'm sure wrongly we if you look at a scene in a particular episode Kill Willie comes to see Molly at Glen Bogle wherever it's called and I come into the library and she's writing at her desk. And if you look carefully at the lamp on the desk, underneath the lampshade are two golden legs standing on a plinth. <laughs> and that was the Oscar with the, with the lampshade amazing. balanced on its head because they'd all been part of it. So it was, it was a very happy time, actually, making Monarch of the Glen. And I was very keen on Kill Willie. And, and Richard was a lovely chap. Uh, and Susan Hampshire, mm. of course, and, and so on. And then by the end of it, because I'd then become uh, a, a, an Oscar-winning writer and the game had kind of changed for me, you know, in life yes. you get moved on to a different square by events. And I was starting to be employed as a writer. And I, in fact, I got rung up to do Mary Poppins on the set of Monarch of the Glen. 
uh, and accepted that and that opened in London and they're on Broadway. And so my game had changed. So in the end, my acting career had really ended. I did a bit more presentation and I made some documentaries and a game show and, you know, other things. But uh, I'd really moved over to writing. You know, when a door opens for you, the only sensible thing to do is to walk through it. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't particularly fight this development. But I had happy years acting. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very undependable career. And of course, you have to be reasonably good about being out of work and not knowing what on earth is going to come next. I remember once I was out shooting uh, with some people and one of them was a banker and his bank had just been taken over by an American bank. Uh, and that week before we, we were together, uh, that week he'd been sacked. And he came to me and, uh, and he told me this story. And he said, I just, I don't know how to deal with this. Presumably as an actor, you've often been out of work. I've never been out of work. I don't know how to do, my whole life is structured. Everything is, I've never felt sorry for anyone in my life. And I said to him, I'm no use to you. Because for us, being out of work is part of it from the day one. And you structure your money life and everything. It's all done differently. I mean, if you have any wit. And you, you live on the edge in a way that most people don't have to live on the edge. I said, if I was in your position, I don't know what I would do. I, 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 I'm completely stuck. Uh, but I, I felt it was so poignant. Anyway, but um, that was really when my life changed. And then it sort of bubbled along and, and uh, Downton came. And I know because we began filming here in... 2010 and you'd been coming to look around in the autumn of 2009 and then for us again we'd been a mixture of weddings and tours but once Downton took off in this country and I think it was I'd called Emma and said tell me what is the hope of a second series and she said well the numbers need to go up and I think the numbers on the first episode were about four million or something I can't quite remember and she said if the numbers go up it, it looks pretty good which they did and then on, I think it was the third episode that you overtook the X Factor, which was well, we so had a, exciting. It was an exciting <laughs> time, that. It and was. we had this very... Un, normally, when a company makes a new show, they give it a big puff and the adverts coming in from the airports and, you know, it's advertised on television and everyone's on the red sofa in the morning and all that. And, and you get a big audience or big-ish uh, for the first episode. Then you lose the people that it wasn't completely right for uh, and so it normally drops in the second week and then by the third you start to pick up the people who didn't see the first but have heard of it and feel they'll give it a try and then it goes on up from there but we went up I think two million in the second week yeah. and they all thought the figures must have been wrongly done or something uh, because it was so odd uh, and then we went up and up and of course the following year uh, we started uh, running it in America uh, and from then on, then it went all over the world. And, well, what was and so was lucky it. was it was the right channel in America, PBS. It just hit the audience right where it should be. So I think, I mean, I think everybody works hard for good luck. I think that's why you're lucky. Yes, I mean, they work <laughs> hard for good luck. And, and the other thing is, you know, when you get a stroke of luck, take it, recognise it mm. and take it. But you do need luck. And Absolutely. sometimes people just don't have the luck. And they're, they're good enough, they're talented enough to go all the way, but they don't get the break. 
And, um, and that always saddens me when I've seen it, which, of course, obviously I have. For some actors and actresses who we meet, we've met here, their future career has just been stratospheric, but there's others who are probably equally good and they just haven't walked through that door. Well, you know, you've got to get the right material, you've got to get the right parts, you've got to be good in a hit because being good in a flop is different and uh, sometimes being good in a flop is not bad uh, because it means the series is not repeated so then you're free for other stuff. Uh, so it's you can never make a ruling but uh, there are all these elements that you can't control. All you can do is your best and, and when you've done that you've done it uh, and that's it. You see Lily James in our own series, you know, made a series of terribly good choices. Uh, and also there were hit after hit. They were very varied, the parts she took. Uh, and by the end of the run, well, I don't think she's reached the end of the run, actually, but I mean, she is now a straight copper bottom movie star. And that was, I mean, I think it was good picking. I think she's very charismatic and I think she's a good actress but there's also an element of what was given her to do you know. I completely agree actually but it has been a joy and I think in some ways Highclere holds it all together as the actors and actresses pass through as the horses are replaced by cars and and all the lives change and somehow this house retains its antiquity and heritage yet does change with the time in what you're showing and I hope with what we do today will change with the time and I hope give people pleasure in the future. That's all I'm ever hoping for it, Julian. You can't make policy for the future. You can live well in the present and try to create as many options as possible. You have these different periods. I mean, you've got your own heiress who married in and saved the house and redid everything yeah. and all the rest of it. You've also got, because of Lord Carnarvon, who d discovered the tombs of Tutankhamun, or however you pronounce it, I mean, that gives you a whole identity in the 1920s, which is a completely different sort of extra story. So uh, I think it's a very rich house for that, that sort of thing. Oh, I think it is as well, and I love history. I often wonder, what is the genie in the bottle for Downton Abbey, Julian? And I... Not really sure I know where to start. Do you have any thoughts about it? Well, obviously I have thought about this because uh, I've often been asked, yes. you know, why do you think <laughs> down there? Oh. And I have thought about it. But for me, it was an absolute moment of good fortune in the combination. I mean, when I was a little boy, I used to sometimes play at cooking in the kitchen. Uh, and everything, there were little grey lumps would come out of the oven, and, you know. And then one day I made perfect eclairs and my mother said, how did you do this? How did you make these? Of course, I had no idea. I just threw everything in and, and a perfect eclair came out. And, and I think that was an analogy, really, that we got the perfect cast. The house was absolutely ideal. Uh, the script seemed to work. The timing was right. The public, uh, which is, you know, very much what... Uh, Peter at ITV, Peter Fincham, very much yes. what Peter Fincham at ITV had thought, mm -hmm. that the, the general consensus that period drama was dead was wrong and the public was ready for a new period drama they could get involved in. And I think all of those elements came together and made a hit show. So I don't think you can take out one bit and say that was the reason it was a hit. I think the music was perfect. We were very lucky with the costumes. Uh, you know, on and on it went. We, we were pretty lucky with the weather. 
uh, <laughs> and um, you know, I, it just happened right. It did, but I think it's all about the detail, isn't it? A sense of place and timing, and I'm incredibly grateful to have been part of the journey. I know Geordie is as well, and I think the whole team at Highclere has much enjoyed it. It's it's given this life and heart and optimism, actually, I think, has come through it. Well, I hope it's an optimistic show. Yes. I mean, I feel that, that, that all of these people, even the ones you don't like much, they're all <laughs> doing their best. They're trying, given the cards they've been dealt, you know, like all of us, we're dealt certain cards, and you try to play them as well as you can. And I, I think that's true of Robert Grantham, and I think it's true of Mrs Patmore. I mean, I, I think they're just doing their best. I completely agree. I think there's also an underlying kindness and sense of community running through it. And I think particularly after the last 18 months, Julian, those those sort of intangible qualities and assets in our lives, much of which has been stripped away, are incredibly important. We do all recognise that. So I think the appetite continues, is all I'll say. Well, let's hope. <laughs> well, we'll see where the journey goes. I'm not sure it's entirely finished, I have to say. <laughs> oh, well, there's another mouthful we do know we do. In, in the new film. And I hope people enjoy it. I'm sure they will. I can't wait to see it. Anyway, thank you for having me. Aww. I've enjoyed this. I love this room. This room is one of my favourites in Britain. And I love the fact that we've made it even more famous than it was already. Oh, Julian, thank you so much. I, I think this is the most beautiful library for its coherence, for the wealth of learning in here. And the fact that people have read the books and I turn a page and I find something scribbled in someone's handwriting in the margin. And that's pretty special. I have to say I don't scribble, otherwise my husband would be most upset with me. Nor do I take anything out of here, but I do pick them out. Do you want to scribble on bits of paper and put them into the books? Oh brilliant idea, Julie. As ever, you've solved all my problems. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, it's Lady Carnarvon, and just to remind you, please do subscribe to this podcast, then you can have it every time it comes out.